back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. Last week was hate week. And uh, as much as I anticipated that things could go bad for the Huskies, I could have never anticipated that it would go this bad. Welcome to the Dog and Duck Show. Hello, Mark. How are you doing, my friend? Are you kidding me, Warren? I'm doing great. It's uh, celebrating, uh, what is this, 15 wins in 17 uh, meetings between the du Ducks and the Dogs? I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah, everybody in Autzen is uh, singing Cool in the Gang, celebrating good times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm so happy for you, Mark. Thank you for, <laughs> for letting me share in your joy. Now, actually, Mark, have you seen the, the classic comedy uh, Airplane? Oh, of, of course, of course. Right. So you remember the character McCroskey and he starts off, he says, looks like I picked the wrong week to quit smoking. Then a little bit later, looks like I picked the wrong week to quit drinking. And then later in the movie, looks like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. And the last one, looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. And uh, man, it has felt that way for <laughs> Washington Husky fans this week, without a doubt. So let's do a quick recount on the week, and then we'll uh, we'll circle back and talk about uh, the game on Saturday at Husky Stadium. So over the last week, uh, Jimmy Lake draws national criticism for his comments about uh, how they Washington doesn't view Oregon as a recruiting competitor because. Uh, they compete, they recruit against teams who are more academically prowess is what, uh, what Jimmy Lake said. And of course that got a lot of negative attention from duck fans, but not only from duck fans, but really from a lot of uh, PAC 12 and national pundits all over the country that felt like that was out of line and uh, you know, pointed out that, that in some ways, Washington is not that superior to Oregon in its academics as the as Jimmy might have made it sound out. And then, of course, the the game comes along and UW gets embarrassed against uh, Oregon at home, losing twenty six to sixteen. They managed to hold Anthony Brown to under one hundred yards passing, but give up over three hundred yards on the ground including 211 to Travis Dye, which I believe is the most uh, rushing yards against a Washington defense since Jonathan Stewart back in uh, the mid-2000s. Um, so uh, a putrid, putrid uh, performance on the rushing defense. And if the second half defense was bad, the first half offense was even worse. The offense was given multiple opportunities with amazing field position, could only muster three first downs. And uh, other than basically getting the ball at the goal line after uh, an amazing interception and return by uh, the Huskies, uh, they would have gone scoreless in the first half despite absolutely dominating the Oregon uh, offense and special teams they were able to do next to nothing on offense themselves. Um, during the game, as we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about a little bit, Jimmy Lake 
tries to break up a, a, a melee between, not even a melee, but just a little bit of a, 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 a taunting match between a duck player and a Husky walk-on. And in the process, wax the Husky player on the head. Uh, that has caused all kinds of, uh, you know, conflict and, and uh, all kinds of, of just controversy around that. On Monday, John Donovan is finally fired as the offensive coordinator. Later that day, Jimmy Lake is suspended from the Arizona State game for the aforementioned uh, altercation with his own player. And since then, the speculation has spun out of control that Lake is gone. He's out of here. He's not going to be the coach after this year. And now the rumor mill has begun as to who or uh, I guess what, not just who, but a group of who will come back, come in and replace this current Husky coaching staff. So uh, if you were a Husky who was trying to quit smoking, this was not the week. If you were trying to quit drinking, this was not the week. If you were trying to quit amphetamines, this was not the week. And good for heaven's sake, if you were trying to quit sniffing glue, this was not the week. <laughs> Wow. All right. I got to take a breath. Mark, uh, what do you have to say about all this uh, cockamamie nonsense? I mean, I feel like, do we need to call someone? Do I need to get you some professional help of someone to talk to? This is, this is a lot, uh, a lot to process for someone who was touting this team as, as an 11 and one college football playoff finalist at the beginning of the year, Warren, I, I can't begin to imagine, you know, the, uh, just the the in, incredible uh, reforming of your views you've had to undertake with this team as you were so high on them coming into the year and it has just unfolded in uh, in such spectacularly awful fashion uh, that uh, yeah I'm, I mean I'm concerned about you as a friend. You know I mean thankfully I'm I'm seated firm seated firmly in my chair I'm not standing on the ledge uh, right now but. Um, you know, thankfully I have Jesus and he keeps me, uh, sane, but if it weren't for that, uh, yeah, I, I think there's, there's a lot of Huskies that have either just given up or they have just, they're just like, they're, they've lost their minds. They're so angry. They don't know what to do with themselves. Uh, so probably best to steer clear of Twitter. If you have any anger issues right now, uh, but uh, the the fact remains that you're absolutely right. I came into this season with uh, boundless optimism that, that this was going to be uh, a magical year, but I wasn't alone in that. I mean, you know, we talked about this before the season began. Phil Steele, who uh, publishes probably the most in-depth preseason magazine out there. I mean, I think it's like $30 for the, for the magazine. Yeah. Um, he had the Huskies as his surprise team of the year, that kind of that, who would be that team that might burst uh, into the top 10, top six uh, rankings that, you know, nobody's really looking at or expecting. And, um, you know, as we've, it seems like we've, we've covered this territory every week. Um, the, the team has disappointed in nearly every single 
function and area of the team. And really now when you look at the Jimmy Lake resume as a head coach, um, you know, our, our mutual friend, uh, JJ Vansel, you know, he, he texted me, he's like, name one thing that Jimmy Lake has done well since becoming head coach. And the only thing I've got is he brought back the helmet car. That's, <laughs> that's it. That that's, that's his great hit. That's his crowning achievement yeah. thus far as a head coach. And I don't think it's going to be for much longer. Well, yeah, I, I guess there's a few different directions we could go with that. Um, I mean, I could take the, the cheap joke and talk about the academic prowess of, uh, of choosing to punt on a fourth and 10 when you have a chance to tie the game with two minutes to go. Um, but I think the more interesting thing to me, Warren, uh, this is kind of a bigger issue because it, it does appear like, you know, the Jimmy Lake story is going to run its course and you're going to have a new coach to get excited about. But, you know, I was at the game, as you know, uh, this Saturday with several Husky friends. And uh, now it was, it was bad conditions. It was super cold. It was rainy. You know, it was not a fun environment. Uh, but I think I was surprised uh, by how the Husky fans just did not show up for this game. They didn't, they didn't show up in their presence. There were a lot of empty seats. They didn't show up in their enthusiasm. It was not a raucous environment. Occasionally on a big third down, they might kind of get up out of their seats and, and add a little noise. Um, but, it, but it was not as loud as, as I've seen Husky Stadium and other games. And then the biggest thing to me, Warren, is fans started leaving really at halftime. We had several fans around us that left at halftime, didn't come back. It was a 10 to nine game at that point. And at any time that Oregon scored a touchdown, there was just a, a stream of fans heading towards the exit to the point where with, with, you know, three minutes to go when Washington is taking over down eight with theoretically a chance to drive and tie the game. Now the offense, hadn't really shown much reason for confidence that they were going to drive down but it was a it was a one possession game yeah. against the top five team with three minutes to go and I took a picture of the crowd that I could send you Warren the place was empty it felt like there were more duck fans than husky fans in the stadium at that point and I think to me that is kind of the more puzzling thing is that I'm like if, if you kind of see yourself as, as a program, you know, a signature program on the West Coast, which I think a lot of Husky fans do, yeah. um, then it seems like this was, a, this was a waving of the white flag that came much too early for my taste. Like, to me, if, if your team is in the game, if yeah. there is a shred of hope, you stay and you cheer loudly and you hope that something can happen. And I did not see that from the Husky fans. And it was, uh, it was pretty shocking to be honest. No, I mean, it's, you're right. It, it is embarrassing for Husky nation to, to, you know, for our fans to behave that way and to, to perform that way. And certainly I think the weather probably played a major factor in that it was a, just a nasty uh, day and and it was cold and wet and windy and 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 then I think you pair that with just 
seeing the continued ineptitude of this offense, um, you know, it just, it, it kind of takes all the joy out of watching your team play when it, it's just literally not doing anything whatsoever at all. And it's been the same problem since Montana. You know, like there's not been, there really has not been anything that has helped us see a pathway for improvement. You know, I look back, I think about, um, you know, to the 2015 season, uh, the Huskies, I believe they got off to, um, I could be wrong on the, the, the exact numbers, but I believe we got off to a, a four and five start. We had a true freshman in Jake Browning. We had a uh, true freshman in Miles Gaskin, Dante Pettis. Uh, but we saw, like they were making mistakes and they were losing games at the end, but we saw the potential there. We saw the playmaking ability there. And at the end of the season, they won, I believe their last three games of the season to finish seven and four, seven and five, something like that. And we went into the 2016 season feeling like, okay, we've got something here. But I think, you know, any, any Husky fan and honestly probably any Duck fan that's watching this season, they're looking at it and they're saying, we don't have anything here. Like there's nothing, there's nothing to hang your hat on and go like, okay, like this could be good. Um, we just need to give these guys a little bit more time. And now I'm not saying we don't have talent. I'm not saying we don't have good players. I'm just saying that what we've seen from the coaching staff has not given us any reason to believe that we're ever going to improve. And I hear all that and I see that. And at the same time, this was not like a 45 to nothing game. Like right. this was, they were, they were down by eight points in the fourth quarter yeah. with the ball against the top five team. And I think if you pull like any fan base nationwide and you say, Hey, if you're going to a game and your team gets the ball in this situation, are you still going to be in the stadium? And yeah. like any, any good fan, I think would say, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to leave, you know, if, if that, those are the stakes. And yet, I mean, there were people actually leaving as the Huskies are taking the field for that drive. They've stood there in the cold and the rain for three and a half hours. And yeah. as the Husky offense is trotting out onto the field, there are fans getting up and heading for the exits. And I mean, uh, it was, it was astonishing. I have never seen that before in mm. a football game. I've seen people leave in the midst of blowouts. I have never seen a stadium empty out yeah. in the midst of a, of a relatively close game, a one possession game in, in the fourth quarter. It was astonishing. And I think it does show to your point, it shows that Jimmy Lake has lost any sort of like trust or belief from the fan base. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, if I'm, I guess if I'm Jimmy Lake, I'm thinking uh, there wasn't a whole lot of, of currency there to go off of. Like, you know, uh, I think in hindsight, after the 0-2 start that they had, uh, it seems like the fans kind of folded on Jimmy Lake at that point and there was no recovering from that. Well, no, I think that there was the opportunity to recover. You know, I mean, I think if we had beaten Oregon State, we'd beaten UCLA. Um, you know, we'd headed into the game uh, against 
you know, UC, against Oregon um, with a winning record. I think that that would have changed everything. But, you know, as we've talked about, it feels like, uh, you know, ad nauseum with this season, it's just, it feels like we're losing, we're losing the game the same way every single time. And I think that's what's really sucked the life out of the program. But let's take a moment. Let's change gears a little bit um, and, you know, put on the, the green and yellow goggles for uh, a little bit. You know, tell us how, you know, what are Oregon fans thinking and feeling right now coming out of the Washington game? And, uh, you know, how... How are they now looking at the season thus far? And how are they looking ahead to the season that's still yet to be played? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, for the Oregon fan base, there was kind of a low a few weeks ago when they had to pull out a win against Cal, who was not playing very well at the time. And and there was the booing of the offense and everything like that. Uh, I think in the last three weeks, there's kind of been a resurgence of, of confidence. Uh, and I think what that really is, is the team is executing in the way that they need to do to beat the opponents in front of them. When they played uh, UCLA, we knew UCLA had a really good run defense and a really porous pass defense. Anthony Brown came out and was as good as he'd been all season. You know, when we played Washington, when Oregon played Washington this past weekend, it was the opposite. Uh, there was the knowledge that Washington's pass defense was going to be among the best in the Pac-12. Uh, but that their rush defense could be pretty porous. And like you said, 300 yards rushing, 200 yards for Travis Dye, like Oregon just pounded the ball for about six yards a carry all game long. And so I think uh, those performances have given me at least a little bit of confidence of, okay, this team is coming in, they're, they're game planning well, they're knowing what they need to do with the opponent in front of them. And uh you know, if, if you're three games left in the season and you're ranked anywhere near the top four and you have a chance to win your conference, then you're naturally going to be pretty excited. And so now we're at the point where each game, the excitement builds on top of itself. You know, um, they're eight and one right now. That's a great mark. Uh, nine and one's better. Ten and one's better. <laughs> like, and so, so the, the, the opportunity to, continue to kind of add to that total uh, makes each week something to really look forward to at this point in the game. So, um, you know, offline, you and I were texting or emailing and, and, you know, I think, well, I think what, what it was is you, you published your uh, top 10, top 25 review that you do uh, on Mark's moments, your, your sports blog. And, um, you know, I responded back to that about Oregon. Like the, I think the real question for me is, can they run the table from here on out, potentially having to beat Utah twice, neither one of those games being at home, Utah on the road uh, in November, and then very likely playing Utah again uh, in the Pac-12 championship game. And this is a Utah team that, again, uh, started off uh, a little poorly, but since making the, the change to their new quarterback and working through some of the, 
tragedy that they've experienced, uh, you know, under, you know, under the number 22 jersey that we talked about a while back. Uh, this is a team that seems to be firing on all cylinders now. So give me kind of share with our, our listening audience the, the your perspective on how you're approaching that and, you know, maybe the, the comparison to March Madness. Yeah, I think I think you nailed it in the if you're kind of handicapping Oregon's schedule, asking them to beat Utah twice and asking them to do it away from home both times is a huge ask. Um, there's no doubt about that. Utah's record it has them barely in the top 25. I'm with you. I think if they had made the quarterback change earlier, and I think I think Cameron Reesing maybe had like a shoulder injury in the offseason and maybe wasn't quite ready to start, and they had a transfer come in who was a four-year starter at Baylor. So it's but but basically had the team that is playing now been playing all season, I think they they're every bit as good as Oregon in terms of they could be the team that is sitting there at eight and one with a you know a high ranking in the uh, in the CFP ranking. So um, I think as I'm kind of looking at these next three games, you've got Washington State at home, you've got Utah on the road, you've got the Beavers at home, and then you would have the Pac-12 championship if they were to take care of business. And I kind of look at that um, like a March Madness run. So if, mm. if you see the Ducks, the Ducks win over Washington is kind of the equivalent of getting into the tournament. Mm -hmm. uh, and now their game against the Cougars would be their first round game in the field of 64. If they win that, they've got a second round game against Utah. If they win that, they're in the Elite Eight against Oregon. Or uh, no, it's Sweet 16, I'm sorry, against Oregon, Oregon State. And then um, the Pac-12 championship would be kind of the elite eight. Uh, the way that's kind of the way that it's set up. If if they're going to really make a run at at trying to make the the final four, and so I think I I approach this kind of the way that I've approached the last several March Madnesses with with Dana Altman's teams, which is uh, I don't think they're necessarily good enough to win their next six games. Uh, I think there's definitely teams that are better than them, mm. but I definitely think they could go on a run. And I, I don't think there's anybody, um, at least in their, on their side of the bracket, which would be, you know, those PAC 12 teams that they have to beat. I don't think there's anybody that they should be, you know, scared of playing. Um, so that, that doesn't mean that they're going to win out. It doesn't mean that they're going to beat all those teams. I think, I think any one of those games is losable, for them, the Cougars have always played the Ducks tough. The Beavers beat the Ducks last year. Utah, we've talked about, is is you know um, clearly shown themselves to be a, a contender as well. So uh, I don't want to like you know get ahead of myself and say, oh well, they should run the table, but they've they've got four games that they could win. Any one of those four games they could win, and so that like I said, it just makes it really exciting. They've got a, they've got the equivalent of an NCAA tournament game this weekend against Washington state. And, you know, that's exciting. That's an exciting place to be three weeks left in the season. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, it's like every game is a playoff game at this point, which I think is the right attitude if you're, if you're an Oregon fan. So let's look ahead to this, uh, this Washington state game. Um, you know, what's your, you know, what are your predictions for that game? Uh, what are your concerns going in against Washington State, a team that, um, you know, has had its own share of turmoil this year with the firing of Nick Rolovich, 
they also started off, um, you know, very poorly, but have uh, picked up a lot of steam over the last uh, few weeks. And, um, you know, it doesn't look as, as much of as, as an easy W as it did, you know, maybe a month ago. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's uh, the Cougars are playing as well as they've played all season. They've won, I think, four out of five. And the only one that they didn't win in that stretch was, uh, was a two-point loss to BYU, where it was basically a failed two-point conversion, which is what kept the game from, from going into overtime. Right. Uh, so, you know, the, Coug- the Cougs are coming in with, with some real confidence. They're kind of making the most out of this coaching turmoil. I think they're kind of using that um, in a positive way, use it, finding some motivation in that, however they are. So uh, it's, it's an interesting matchup from that regard. Uh, I do think that, you know, the Ducks have done a pretty good job in most of their games of controlling the line of scrimmage. And I think that's going to be the biggest advantage that they would seem to have against the Cougars, both on the offense and the defensive side. And as we just saw in the Washington game, like when Oregon is running the ball well, uh, they can just bleed the clock. You know, Travis Dye, if he, he can just keep piling up yards, they've got Anthony Brown as a running option as well. They don't have to ask him to do a whole lot in, in the passing game. Mm-hmm. And so that, that will probably be a similar strategy to Washington State. I, I think they're going to be content to just pound the ball again and again and try to force the Cougars to, to, to make a stop. I think on, on the uh, defensive side, Jaden Delore is a good quarterback. So, you know, he's, he's capable of, of putting drives together, and it's going to be imperative for, you know, the front seven to figure out a way to put some pressure on him to, to keep him from getting comfortable. Uh, so I, I think that's – maybe the more concerning side is, is how the defense kind of slows down uh, Jaden Delore in that offense. But I, I think uh, I would, I would expect Travis die to uh, he should be ready to get the rock more against the Cougars. Cause I, I think they're going to, they're going to keep ringing that bell. Yeah. A heavy dose of Travis die seems to be a, a, a nice recipe. And the great thing about die is that he can, he can run the ball and he's, fantastic at the dump off passes um which can keep those chains moving against uh against washington state uh, you know mark i'm just kind of looking at looking at some of the what's happening in the pac 12 and uh you know there's a term that we use a lot in in sports from uh, i guess the world of science but you know we use the term barometer which is you know an instrument used to measure atmospheric pressure um and uh, is there a worse barometer in the Pac-12 than Stanford University? <laughs> I mean, just li- listen to this schedule, Mark. So yeah. they, they start the season off. They lose to Kansas State 24-7. Then they, uh, uh, they beat USC 42-28. to Then they lose, or then they beat uh, Vanderbilt uh, 41 to 23 lose to UCLA 35, 24. At that point, everybody thought, okay, this is a pretty strong UCLA team. Then they come in and they beat Oregon, who was five in the country at the time. Now number three in the nation, 31, 24 in overtime. And of course 
there was a lot of drama and question and intrigue around that that loss or that win for Stanford. Then they go on to, to lose by 18 points to Arizona State. They lose to three by three points to walk to uh, Washington State. Lose with a last second touchdown to Washington, and then this past week lose 52 to seven to Utah, a Utah team that ran for over 440 yards against uh, this team. And so, I mean, it just leaves you wondering, like, what do like what does a win against Stanford mean, or what does a loss against Stanford mean? It doesn't seem to have any transitive value whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I do think uh, the games that Tanner McKee has played and they've played better, right, than than the games in which he hasn't. So the most recent game against Utah, they did not have Tanner McKee at quarterback. Um, those that lost to Kansas State to start the year, they didn't have him, um, but. Yeah, it, it makes no sense. Um, the Oregon loss to Stanford will be one of the most puzzling losses come the end of the year because Stanford might not win another game. Like they might finish three and nine and yeah. this, and they, that might actually cost Oregon a playoff spot. You know, I'm saying they should kind of treat yeah. every game like a playoff spot, uh, like a playoff game from here on out, which I think is the right mentality, but there's a, you know, a worst case scenario where they get leapfrogged by a couple teams, uh, because they have a loss to a three and nine team and their resume is being compared against somebody who lost to a 10 and two team. And so it's totally baffling. Um, I mean, historically Stanford has been, you know, one of the better teams in the conference for, for quite a while. So in that sense, it's kind of like you're losing, if, if you're losing to the name, it's not so bad, but losing to that version of this year's team uh, it's, it's pretty bad. Right. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Stanford, you mentioned David Shaw and you say, oh, well, I can understand. But like you said, when you look at the record, when you see what this team is, you know, it's it's inability to run, it's inability to stop the run. This is not the Stanford that that, you know, we know and remember. Um, yeah. Yeah. Looking ahead of their schedule, they've got Oregon State this week and then uh Probably the only sure chance of winning is against California if they even play the game. And um, and the then game is, game is a go, uh, according to news today. So against California, yeah, or, or Stanford in California, yeah. All of but, the play, all of the Cal players that are in quarantine are expected to be eligible for that game. Okay, so that that's. You know, if nothing changes, though, yeah, I mean, that's true. that's true. If there's any other reported, uh, you know, contact with COVID, you know, then then that goes out the window. And I think so. I, it's still to me an if, but assuming they play California, you would think that Stanford has a good chance of beating them. And then, you know, it would seem as they would have no chance against number seven Notre Dame, but you know based on what we've seen from Stanford this year, they might lose to Oregon state and Cal and then end up beating uh, Notre Dame. So it's just a bizarre wonky season in the PAC 12. Yeah. I, uh, it I, honestly, Warren bringing up that Stanford game, every time I think about it, I just kind of am like, 
what was that? Like, I have, I have no frame of understanding it. Uh, I could mention, you know, the several different ways in which it was just kind of a weird, weird game, but uh, yeah, it, it has not made any sense. I mean, Oregon has survived close calls kind of all season long. I think they've needed their defense to come up with a stop in the final two minutes in like five of their eight wins. So in that sense, you know, you could say, well, Oregon just, you know, um, you know, came too close to the flame in that one game, but, but still it's just uh, it's a hard game to kind of fully wrap your mind around. So, you know, this leaves us in the PAC 12 with uh, Oregon really being the flag bearer for the PAC 12. And uh, you know, as a Husky fan, there's this like ongoing argument, you know, and you, you, there's there's debate within the camp of Husky fans. Like, do you cheer for the Pac-12? Do you cheer for or against Oregon? You know, I I you know honestly, my position is typically uh, never cheer for Oregon, no matter what. Um, but you know, the the idea that that uh, you know Oregon is has a legitimate chance to be the first Pac-12 team to make it into the college football playoffs, um, you know, in a year where the rest of the Pac-12, uh, other than, you know, to a certain extent, Utah is just in complete disarray. Uh, you know, I mean, like what, what, where does the, like, where does the Pac-12 go from here? You know, uh, I, I think that's a question that everybody in the Pac-12 is concerned about except Oregon fans. And I, and yeah. I don't mean that to be, you know, no, I spug, get it. but it's kind of like, uh, I think right now the Pac-12 is working out for Oregon the way that the ACC has worked out for Clemson in some respects in, in that it's the winnable conference. And if you win the conference, you you're going you. to have a chance to yeah. kind of be in the mix. And so... I, I don't think Oregon looks at this and saying, man, the Pac-12 needs a great USC or a great Washington or, you know, a resurgent UCLA or anything else like that. I think Oregon is is content to be the only school that is really kind of in the national conversation at times. Uh, if you're any one of the other 11 schools, you're you're probably, you know, feeling a little different. But But even then, I think if you're Oregon State or you're Washington State, you're not necessarily wanting Washington to find their way, or you're not necessarily wanting USC to find their way. I mean, I think everybody benefits when USC is having a downstretch like they are now, because it gives these other teams a chance. Utah is going to be playing in the PAC 12 title game for what the third time in the last four years. That's a direct benefit from having USC in a, you know, in a place of kind of turmoil. And so this whole kind of, you know, needing the conference to do well, it, it feels like it's situational kind of based on, on the school. But I think if Washington was in Oregon's position, if, if, you know, they, if they had beaten Michigan in their non-conference game and were, were eight and one right now, um, you would be much less concerned about the fact that there were no other PAC 12 teams, you know, kind of yeah. um, in the rankings. I think the one place that it does hurt a team like Oregon is, over the last month of the season, they're not going to get the same chance for really signature wins right. that a team like Ohio State's going to get when they play Michigan and Michigan State back-to-back weeks. 
So in that sense, you might think, well, winning the Pac-12 might cost you a playoff spot. You might be the fifth best team yeah. because your conference is, is disrespected. And, you know, that that is, a, I guess, part of the concern. But I think, you know, in the playoff era, Washington has made a playoff with Chris Peterson. Oregon made a playoff when they had Marcus Mariota. So I still think if you win the Pac-12 and you come close to running the table um, doing it, you're, you're still going to be you know, one of the few teams in, in playoff conversation. No, I agree with that. I actually, you know, I, I fully, uh, you know, endorse that same opinion because it infuriates me when I hear Pac-12 and even Husky fans saying, we need USC to be strong. And I totally agree with you. I'm like, no, let's keep them as weak as long as possible keep Clay Hilton on staff as long as possible. Yes. Uh, let them, you know, mire in the mediocrity as long as possible, because once USC, you know, does come back to its full strength, uh, it will, it will negatively impinge upon the chances of every other PAC 12, including your Oregon duck and my Washington Huskies. Yeah. So let's take advantage of it. And, you know, we had 2016 to 2018 where we kind of ran the Pac-12. Oregon was down. USC was down. Um, but uh, now is Oregon's time. And uh, how long they can stretch that out, uh, it looks promising based on the fact that, uh, Mark, we very well could be looking at as many as, you know, six to, to nine head coaching changes in the Pac-12, uh, you know, basically beginning at the beginning of this season until the point of the beginning of next season, um, this is a major time of upheaval and turnover, and the stability that Oregon has should, you know, help them to produce a lot more success in the coming months. Yeah, you're absolutely right about all of that, and uh, I, you know, I, if I can just. Um, switch directions just just briefly here this is a thought that i had earlier that i wanted to make sure make note of um and that is one other storyline to keep in mind for oregon over these final three weeks is i think cj verdell has kind of moved into front runner for pac-12 player of the year or at least offensive player of the year with his performance since you know cj verdell went down right, prior to you mean travis die who did I say? I'm sorry. You said CJ Verdell, but you yeah. mean Travis Dye. I meant Travis Dye. Yeah. Yeah. So since since CJ Verdell went down, right? Uh, you know, Travis Dye went from kind of splitting carries to really becoming uh, the workhorse. He ran for 145 yards and had 73 yards receiving against Cal. He scored four touchdowns on four consecutive carries against UCLA. Uh, he scored a couple touchdowns against Colorado. That was a blowout, so he didn't do a lot. But then obviously the big performance against Washington. Yeah. But what that's done is despite, you know, splitting carries for the first half of the season, he is second in the Pac-12 right now in rushing yards, just about, uh, I think he's 50 or 60 yards behind uh, B.J. Baylor of Oregon State. And so, uh, and he's got significantly more receiving yards than Baylor. So if you're talking, you know, total offense, uh, he, would, he would be the leader right now. Uh, I think Drake London of USC was probably the favorite to win that award because he was having a phenomenal season before he went down 
with yeah. an injury, a phenomenal season for a, a bad team. Yeah. Uh, but then the other, the other thing is that the PAC 12 does not really have a, a signature quarterback this year. No. Uh, Jaden Delora of Washington state, he leads the PAC 12 with 17 touchdown passes. If he was in the ACC, that would be, uh, he would be sixth place in touchdown passes. Yeah. Uh, and the ACC is not exactly a, you know, a powerhouse conference, but, um, no. but they've got a few good quarterbacks. So it's kind of a wide open year. And I think Travis Dye has emerged with a couple of these big games. He's going to be playing in, in, in the biggest game each week kind of going forward. And so that's something that, you know, I have a vested interest in. I'm, I'm really hoping that he can uh, secure that award with some, some great games in the next few weeks. Well, you know, there's nothing left for me to get excited about in the Pac-12 other than my Pac-12 fantasy football team, which you and I are bar both part of the same league. And Mark, as you know, uh, with the first draft pick, I selected C.J. Verdell. And with my last draft pick, I, I selected Travis Dye. Yeah. In between that, I also picked um, Drake London, Kyle Phillips, Greg Dolkich, and uh, Dylan Morris and Peyton Henry. So, uh, you know, seeing Travis Dye stack up yards for the rest of the season will uh, be my only source of uh, inspiration for this, this Pac-12 season. But, um, hey, before we kind of wrap things up, um, you know, I mentioned a little bit about the potential coaching carousel and uh, so I wanted to just walk through um, the Pac-12 coaching lineup and, um, and just you tell me whether or not you think this coach is, is you know, on the hot seat, whether or not uh, he's, he's going to, to be here, you know, by this time next year. So uh, first of all, we've got Oregon. Um, you know, this seems like a, a no-brainer. Mario Cristobal, why would he leave uh, or why would he get fired? Obviously, he wouldn't get fired, but is there any chance that, that Cristobal takes uh, a position somewhere else? I, I don't think so. I mean, the LSU job would probably be the biggest one out there, and he coached at Alabama, so and he went to school at Miami, so he's that's a part of the country that he's pretty familiar with. LSU is obviously a great job. Uh, the last three coaches that have coached at LSU have won national titles, uh, but two of those coaches have also been fired, <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's not necessarily a job where you have uh, you know a lot of job security. Um, so you know, I guess there's an outside chance. I, I think he's pretty content at Oregon. I think with the recruiting classes he's got coming in, I think he feels like the next couple of years are going to be the best possible years for him there. So I, I would be pretty surprised if he left. Okay. Yeah. I would agree with that. I would, that would be one of the most shocking developments uh, in many years in the PAC 12 for, for him to leave at, at this point. Um, all right. So next up on the list, we know this is a certainty and that is Washington state. Obviously Nick Rolovich was forced to, uh, was fired or forced to resign from Washington state due to his, um, refusal to get the, the state mandated vaccine. Um, Oh, 
Hey, hold on a second here. We have some breaking news and um, we've got we've got a special guest breaking in. Uh, Warren, how are you? I am doing well. So with us today on the Dog and Duck Show, breaking news. Uh, Mike Martin has joined the Dog and Duck Show at Howlin' Husky is with us. And uh, hey, welcome to the show, Mike. And thanks for having me on. Uh, kind of a tumultuous, crazy week. You know, we were just saying that like in the spirit of uh, the movie Airplane, we, we picked a hell of a week to quit sniffing glue. <laughs> yeah, um, it's been never ending um, uh, craziness. I don't know really um, how else to, to put it. Um, you know, I think a lot of people kind of saw the writing on the wall. Um, I won't say some of the things that I know that kind of went on, but this has been, um, if it does in fact happen, it's been something that has kind of been in the works for a little bit of a while, a little while that um, Jimmy Lake, uh, as I understand, is having his contract bought out by UW. Uh, I don't know if he's play, called his last game, um, but he won't be there on the sideline against ASU. Yeah, we were just, as you, as you were uh, calling in, we were just walking through this massive potential coaching carousel that is uh, just beginning to spin in the Pac-12. And, uh, you know, right at the center of it all for Dog and Duck Show fans, of course, is uh, the future of Jimmy Lake. So, uh, Mike, you know, maybe give us uh, any, any insight you can about, uh, you know, how this is developing and uh, what, you know, what, what news, what rumors, what ideas or thoughts do you have about where UW goes uh, from here if indeed Coach Jimmy Lake is on the outs? Well, I think the, the, the one thing that um, people should keep in mind that these are all rumors. These are things from well-placed sources, but uh, the, the universe has not commented on anything. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, there, there's going to be a lot of, uh, I, I, I think that Chip Kelly is gone. Um, I've heard some recruits say that they've been told that the, the coaching staff will not be returning. So it sounds like Chip Kelly is gone. Um, I, uh, I have uh, some people that have said that Jonathan, see me, um, the Penn State coach. James Franklin. James, James Franklin. Franklin yep. That James Franklin is likely headed to USC. So, uh, you know, there, there's a, there is a carousel. I don't, I wonder if Herm Edwards can survive down there in the desert. Um, uh, the, the, the things that went on that has cast uh, a, a shadow on Sun Devils uh, with things that they did. Um, he's he's going to make it through the end of the season. I don't know if he makes it to next season. Um, so, that you know the if if Washington is uh, is looking for a new coach, there's going to be some other programs that Washington is going to be competing with. So if they are going to um, end it with Jimmy Lake, 
now is the time and get the, those feelers out there, get that coaching search underway uh, because uh, Arizona State can be a good job. Uh, UCLA can be a good job. Washington uh, has proven that you can win a national championship or two here. So those are to, to attract a, a good coach, you know, it, if it's going to happen at the end of the season, if it's going to happen now, I think in my opinion, it should happen now if you're going to save recruiting, because if you wait until the end of the season, national signing day is two, three weeks away. And to try to then put something together, you're really kind of behind the eight ball on that. And that's the one thing that the early signing period has done. I think it has accelerated Mm -hmm. the, the, the impatience of, of fans and of faculty. No, I agree. And, you know, um, we got some news on Twitter that, that came out this morning that uh, former uh, Husky player, Don James, protege, NFL head coach, Pac-12 head coach, Jim Mora has signed a contract to coach for the Huskies. But not, yes, that is not true. the Washington Huskies. <laughs> Not uh, the Washington Huskies, the Connecticut Huskies. So I guess we can officially erase Jim Mora off of the chalkboard of potential candidates. Yeah, and um, let's. Uh, he is actually not a Don James protege. He's not part of that coaching tree. His okay. dad is. He uh, he played for Washington, but he never actually uh, coached under Don James. But right. he's he's a guy that um, you know he he landed in UCLA. The uh, the fans there have a little bit more patience than I think they have in Seattle, and he he got close, he got close, and then things just didn't break right for him, and so uh, whatever happened, he left, and so um, he's he's going to do good in 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 UConn because they have a very passionate base. They don't have the amount of fans, but they have a lot of people that love their program. It's typically a basketball school. So to, to be able to go there, and I think they're in the Big East still. Everything's kind of moved around so much. Who knows if they're in the Big East or ACC or where they are these days. They're, they're an independent, actually. They're independent in football? Yes. That's Okay, so they can really kind of uh, – he can kind of guide their schedule and kind of – build a record a little bit against maybe some lesser opponents and while he uh, builds that program because I don't think they're in rebuild mode I don't know that I don't know UConn's history in football but I think he's in a really good position to to be out there and I I don't think that I think that signing Jim Mora is a sign that they're going to move into a conference because you, you, they're going to spend some money to get Jim Mora Jr. And so they want to build that so that uh, when the college football playoffs actually are a thing, like a. Mm-hmm.
they kind of make it in. That's great. You know, so Mike, we were, uh, we were chatting a little bit about the, that coaching circle and, you know, we talked about Oregon, Oregon, obviously uh, there's nobody that's in a safer position coaching wise right now than Mario Cristobal. Um, but there, there has been a little bit of question of would he opt out to another program in LSU, you know, something like if Miami were to open up something like that. Uh, but, you know, maybe I'll throw this out to, to, to Mike and Mark, but um you know, if the Huskies were looking at trying to make a move to uh, both strengthen their program and weaken Oregon's, would there be any desire on their part to maybe go after a Joe Moorhead for this uh, open position? I don't. Is it Joe or is it Jim Moorhead? Joe. Joe. Okay. Um, well, I think that. I, I, I don't know that um, an Oregon coach would really go to Washington or wash like a high level coach would, would um, unless Moorhead were to become a head coach. I right. don't. Uh, and I guess that's kind of what I'm asking, you know, kind of like Jonathan Smith, he, le he leaves Washington. He goes to Oregon state. And by doing so Washington was weakened. Oregon state was strengthened. Uh, that was a win-win for Oregon state. Uh, you know, net gain, net loss. Uh, and, and so is there any, would there be even any idea that that could be something that they could attempt, uh, you know, against an Oregon type of well, situation? As, as I understand, um, well, back when the Huskies lost to Montana, um, a couple of boosters said, we have the money, we will buy out Jimmy Lake's contract so that you could afford to go after uh, somebody and, and save the school's revenue to go after um, a, a head coach that so would it would it be him I don't know what he his strengths are in recruiting I don't know his administrative side uh, from a play calling side of things um, he's 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 one of the better ones um, he but I think that if if Jonathan Franklin goes to USC, does he want to hook up with his old friend or does his old, his old friend want to go to North and play for Darth Vader? So, um, you know, Moorhead could be a really interesting person to look at here in the offseason. Um, so I think that they could do that. Now, here's here's a thing that when uh when mario cristobal was hired uh, at oregon uh everybody laughed they pointed to his coaching record uh mm -hmm. wherever he was and and i said you know he spent a lot of time with nick saban and he knows the how to um how to go out there and build a program because uh, Cristobal is now part of the Don James coaching tree. And when I was down in Alabama, uh, shooting part of the documentary, um, on Don James, we, we asked him, you know, what do you have in place here at Alabama that you are, um, that is from Don James. And he said, everything, everything that we do here is what Don James taught me. And he said, and that's what I teach 
all of my assistant coaches is the system. And he calls it the system. And so Mario Cristobal, when he went in, I said, you know, you can laugh now. And I'll, I, I could go find a tweet for you. But I said, laugh at him now. But in two to three years, uh, he's going to be a real threat because he can recruit and he understands the system. And he went in there, I think, with a chip on his shoulder that he was going to have to bully the bully. And you saw that happen on Saturday. It's yeah. good. Hey, Mark, any thoughts about uh, the Joe Moorhead, uh, you know, idea? Is that something that, I mean, would Joe Moorhead even be a head coaching candidate? Well, it, it, it's an interesting thought. Uh, I think you're right that it would weaken Oregon because he has been a fantastic play caller for Oregon. And, and I don't think uh, Oregon would, would want to miss that. He's had one run as a, uh, a head coach, and it was a two-year run at Mississippi State where he was 14 and 12. And then, you know, relieved of his job after, after a decent season. I mean, an eight and five season at Mississippi State to me oh, is that's not pretty good. It's not a season worth uh, a firing, but but I, I think maybe just wasn't a good fit there. So you well, know, and, and, and you know that eight and five that's like ten and two at Alabama, which would exactly. get fired. Exactly, and so I, I think it was more uh, that he wasn't a fit with the administration rather than what the on field results were. Uh, I think to Mike's point, you know, I don't know how how he would do recruiting on the West coast. That's obviously a little different area. That's not where his, the majority of his background is. That's something that some guys kind of can take to, but in, in other cases, you kind of want a known quantity um, on the West coast. So, you know, I, I don't, I think if you rolled the dice and went with Joe Moorhead, um, your offense is probably going to get a lot better quickly, you know, and, and as a short well, how could it not? Yeah. Right. Right. That's right. true. So uh, they they could go in reverse, I guess, and get worse. But um, you know, yeah, I think you, you can know, fall yeah. forward for this Washington Husky offense. Looks like it's playing the '91 Husky defense continually. So yeah, yeah. That's, against that's, Montana. Exactly. Exactly. Well, hey, uh, I don't want to go too much longer because we've already uh, eclipsed the hour mark for the show. But I did want to just throw out an idea, and I wanted to hear both of your thoughts about this because, um, you know, as I, re I was reflecting on the, you know, the, the situation that we're in, you know, and there's a lot of names out there, Tom Herman, uh, Bill O'Brien, lots of guys out there, P.J. Fleck, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys that we probably won't get, but um, you know, I'm wondering, like, uh, aside from the recruiting violations that have taken place at Arizona State under Herm Edwards, is there any wisdom to, you know, maybe trying to follow the model that they have built, which is this idea of kind of an NFL style uh, CEO head coach with high level, uh, you know, autonomous coaching uh, at the, the the coordinator position and really making Herm Edwards or whoever the Washington NFL head coach might be as more of a figurehead um, than maybe the traditional head coach that's kind of doing it all. Um, is there any, like, could that be a way to attack this thing a little bit differently than trying to uh, follow the model of either a getting a, a head coach who 
uh, maybe has a little bit of tread left on his tires or B taking a chance on an up and coming guy that um, may or may not pan out at the big league level. I'll let Martin go first. (laughs) I think that depends entirely on who the candidate is that that I think if you have a candidate where that is their skill set is to kind of step in as like a CEO type role, then, then you go for that. Um, You know, but, but not every candidate, you know, uh, I think about when, when Oregon promoted, uh, I mean, that, that was, that was kind of the Mike Bellotti approach at Oregon. And then when they promoted Chip Kelly, it was very clear that Chip Kelly is going to call all the plays. He's going to micromanage the offense. And that was necessary and good, you know? And so it would have, it would have been a mistake to look at Chip Kelly and say, you need to lead in the way that Mike Bellotti led that, that just would not have been a good fit. And so I think it's gotta be, it's gotta be specific to the candidate. If you're interviewing a candidate that wants to come in and implement that approach and uh, empower his coordinators a great deal, then, then that's great. But if you get some guy who's got an offensive scheme and he wants to call all the plays because he thinks they can average 40 points a game doing that, then I would give him the keys to the offense and, and, and hope that he makes a good hire on the defensive coordinator spot. Uh, well, the, the thing that I, I like both styles and it's going to depend on who you get. And that's why I think that what I'm hearing is the coaching search is absolutely wide open. They haven't said, we want to be this, we want to be that. I think that what Washington is going to do is they're going to swing for the fences. Jen's going to get in her private airplane and uh, go out and try to reel in another Chris Peterson. And I think they have to swing for the fences. The The CEO approach can be very effective. Uh, Don James did that. That's He coached the coaches. Um, yeah. He never interceded on, on anything. And I don't know if you uh, remember Skip Hall, Warren, but um, he – he uh, he coached under Don James, and he went to Boise State. He has a, a new book out called "Coach Him Up," and in there, um, he he was uh, he tells a story of of how he, as uh, a coach, was early in in the early days, was yelling at one of his players, and and his his coach said, "You have to coach him up, not down." And so that's really became his philosophy. And I think that's what you need these days is somebody that's going to build up these kids, uh, you know, be able to check their ego. The, the one thing that you, you, you hear Nick Saban, you hear Don James, you hear all these other coaches that are really successful. They check their ego. They don't care who gets credit as long as they win. And, Nick Saban, he's very happy to be the dumb. He wants to be the dumbest kid in the room because that means that he's surrounded himself with a lot of, uh, of great knowledge. And so that's what I think it has to be the right recipe. Um, Jimmy Lake said that he knew the recipe, but I think he turned the heat up too high and um, burned a few cookies along the way. <laughs> yeah yeah no there's no doubt about it i i don't think uh 
I don't think that the dough was ready before he put it in the oven and and uh, it's turned out to be a, a, a big, big mess. Well, hey, well, hey wanna... Warren, yeah. Warren, before we go, I got a question for you. Which quote will you remember the most? Um, see, if, and see if you can tell me who said these. I'm basically playing with house money. That was Steve Sarkeesian. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, awesome. Awesome. And that was Nick Holt. And then I know the recipe. That's Jimmy Lake. Which of uh, those three quotes do you think is more ominous than the other? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, I think that that Sarkeesian quote of I'm playing with house money was was uh, pretty ominous. But Man, I don't think that there's ever been a coach that uh, has disappointed in such a short time as much as Jimmy Lake, which is so unfortunate because there's so many of us here who really thought Jimmy Lake was going to be phenomenal. We were all cheering for him. Uh, we all were hoping and expecting and believing the best. And I think that just makes this whole thing that much more painful. Well, could you imagine if Jen Cohen had not offered him the head coaching job, the uproar that she would have been the dumbest AD of all time if she didn't offer him the head coaching job? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, as they say, hindsight is 2020, but uh, it was the clearest and easiest handoff decision that uh, could have been. Exactly. And uh, the fact that Chris Peterson endorsed it. You know, Chris Peterson knows what it takes to be successful. He looked he looked Jimmy Lake in the eye every single day. And what he saw in Jimmy Lake's eye was this this is a guy that can be a head coach and will succeed. So why it didn't work out, how it didn't work out. I mean, I think Jimmy Lake's pride is a, a big contributor to that. Why he didn't, um, you know, hire an offensive coordinator with more, uh, you know, head coaching chops and a better resume, I don't know. But uh, you know, this is this is one of the most devastate, devastating and uh, surprising collapses that uh, I can think of in all of Husky history. I mean, you know, the Ty Willingham is the the bottom of the bottom, but I think we saw the writing on the wall with Ty Willingham. We didn't see any writing on the wall with Jimmy Lake. Yeah, it was it, it was a fizzle by um, by Willingham. It was a crash and burn by Jimmy Lake. And I know you're a, a biblical person, yeah. uh, Warren. So uh, the old saying, "Pride comes before the fall," and I think kind of that is um, that may summarize uh, kind of what happened uh, at Mont Lake. No doubt about it. Well, hey, thank you, Mike, for joining us today on the show. Uh, Mark, thank you for uh, your patience enduring two dogs uh, trying to, you know, we're just we're here. We're just here sitting at the bar uh, talking about our, our our woes and our sadness. But um, uh, well, I, I tell you what, Mark, I'm going to I'm going to say this to you. You have uh, sat there. Uh, I don't know that you have uh, that blank eating grin, 
but to be the final nail in the coffin uh, for a, a Ducks fan has to feel pretty good. I, I just comment on that, and then I'll let you go. Well, you're not wrong, Mike. You're not wrong at all. It's like, <laughs> I mean, if, if I'm looking at this kind of from a 10,000-foot view, it's like Jimmy Lake has a 7-6 and six career record, yeah. uh, and he just lost to a top-five team in a game that was a one-possession game with three minutes to go. Any other coach in any other situation, that's not a grounds for firing. If a coach had a debut season, they go seven and six, they lose to their rival in a tight game at the end of the year. That's not considered like a disaster, especially when he took over for a coach that was eight and five in his last year. But it has come about in such a way that uh, just the collision of events from Jimmy Lake saying the things before the game about academic prowess from, from him going after the player and getting himself suspended, from John Donovan getting fired the next day and all of it, to have all of that unfold after an Oregon-Washington game uh, while the Ducks are in the playoff hunt and everything like that. You're, you're not wrong, Mike. It is, uh, it is a very satisfying feeling to, uh, to see your rival unravel in this way at this time. Well, I think there's going to be a lot more to talk about in the weeks to come. This weekend, of course... Uh, Washington is playing or, or is playing Arizona State with head coach Bob Gregory and uh, offensive coordinator Junior Adams. We'll break that down next week. And uh, as we already talked about, Oregon goes in uh, to Washington State, and uh, who knows what uh, mischief and chicanery. Uh, the Cougars can pull on the Oregon Ducks. They've done it before. Will they do it again? Time will tell. But for that, I'm going to wrap it up and uh, say thank you on behalf of Mike and all my dog fans out there. Go dogs! And for the Ducks, I say go Ducks. Thank you, guys. And, uh, and I say go Cougars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. <laughs>